Officer K D6-3.7. Let's begin. Ready? Yes, sir. Recite your baseline. In blood black, nothingness began to spin. A system of cells interlinked within cells interlinked within cells interlinked within one stem. Fuck off, skid job. And dreadfully distinct against the dark, a tall white fountain played. Cells. Cells. Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do you long for having your heart interlinked? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do you dream about being interlinked? Interlinked. What's it like to hold your child in your arms? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do you feel that there's a part of you that's missing? Interlinked. Interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Why don't you say that three times? Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Thank you for joining our Zoom chat interlinked on shoulder of Orion. It's very impromptu. We thought about it sort of last minute. Really, we've received a lot of um, email and response from everybody saying, thank you for doing the podcast. Life is really tough. People who've lost their mothers um, to COVID-19. People just going through really hard times whether it's breakup, whether it's losing jobs, which everyone's experiencing. And I really felt like it was important to open up a dialogue and certainly talk about Blade Runner or whatever we want to talk about, but just essentially be here for anybody who wanted to just chill out and shoot the shit. So Craig, uh, people might, you know, since you're the the only one here with us at the moment, we might as well take a second and uh, before you speak, let people guess, you know, what you might have been uh, heard on previously. You want to give us a little little taste of what people might know you from? My name is Michael Caine. <laughs> it takes a man in a tweed suit five and a half seconds to fall from the top of Big Ben to the ground. From the top of Big Ben to the ground. Not a lot of people know that. But I, I uh, would, well, where would they know me from? They won't know me from much, except uh, maybe at the intro of your uh, wonderful podcast. <laughs> the intro, and that was an astounding Michael Caine impression. I just want to, I'm speechless, but even the facial stuff, that was, that was incredible. But yeah, but you're the voice of the blimp at the beginning of the show, yeah. among many other uh, and you know, memorable turns in Gethsemane um, and, uh, and, and elsewhere too. So yeah, and you've been a, a big part of our, you know, fan community friends for, for quite a long time now. Um, that much is, is true. I've time. been a fan for a very long time. I wouldn't say I'm a big part, but I'll tell you, um, just a tremendous honor every time I get to hear my voice. Every every time I tune in, it's like maybe they'll get a new, they'll have a new intro for the new season or something. And but you know, I, I I'm just uh, terribly tickled to be involved in any way. Well, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. it might just end up being us three, but whatever the case, I think. Um, it's just the dialogue is good. Like it's good for me. Like I'm still go to work every day. Um, but I'm come right home. There's no, I don't go anywhere else. I'm experiencing that cabin fever that I'm sure everyone is. So it's nice just to be able to see other faces, even if it's virtual, you know, Craig, what's your, what's your history with Blade Runner? Like, how did you, how did you get into this stuff? Oh, wow. Yeah. Cause when I hear, um, all of your wonderful guests that come on and, and the question always comes around where what was your introduction into Blade Runner well 
I had, I was just wrapping up at the University of Michigan in 1982, and I was uh, a film and communications major, and uh, there was a theater there that I went to with great anticip anticipation to go see it, um, and sat through it, and was just absolutely awestruck by the film, and went back the next day and saw it again. So I've had a lifelong love affair with this since uh, since since the premiere of the movie. And of course, uh, there was a lot of downtime there uh, before the um, uh, movie became uh, readily available on on video. And of course, with the uh, the many iterations of it and the different versions, uh, it's all, it's rediscovering the film over and over again. But uh, that was that was my intro uh, to Blade Runner. Um, but the 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 real uh, awakening came when one of my friends told me about, are you aware of this uh, podcast, Shoulder for Ryan? I'm like, no, tell me about it. And so I'm like, wow, this is something. And I'm not, I'm not a podcast guy at all. Your podcast is the one that brought me into podcasts. We were it the really gateway is. drug for podcasting for you. It's just absolutely... Um, and, uh, and I know that I've, uh, I'll, I'll say this for, for, for if any of this is getting played back on, on, uh, on a future uh, uh, podcast of yours, but um, you already know that um, bringing, having access to this community to me was just uh, absolutely eye-opening and wonderful and, and, and what a great thing to have to come into my life uh, when you folks uh, came on to do this thing because all of a sudden it's like oh all these things and all of these ideas that i've had about the film and how much i love the film it's a uh, uh, validation to hear everybody else uh, after all of these years because i felt like i was off on this island all by, all by myself yeah this has been a continual journey of, of feeling that way like every time we have somebody come on i'm like oh my god it's like finding you know a spirit yeah. floating out there that you didn't even, that you kind of felt, but you hadn't put a name on yet, you know? That right. the, the community is absolutely incredible around these films. It really is. Totally. So where were you when you heard about 2049? Where was I? Yeah, like what, did you hear news about it first? Like when you first heard that there's a new Blade Runner coming out. Like, oh gosh, yeah, I think that I was, um, I was I do I was doing some work at that time for our local cable company uh, doing some production work and somebody had said something about it you know and I'll tell you what when I first heard that they were going to do a Blade Runner sequel uh, or a, a new film on Blade Runner I was terrified I was absolutely terrified because I am um, I'm in that boat that I thought. I'm not a fan of Prometheus. I love the Alien, first two Alien films. Um, and when Ridley was coming back in to do Prometheus, I'm like, oh, this is gonna be great. And I was just sorely disappointed at the, oh, the, the script. I think it was mostly the script. I think you had a lot of very intelligent people doing a lot of very dumb things. And, and I just didn't see who signed, like who signed off on this anyway. <laughs> so when they said the Blade Runner was gonna happen, I was, terrified i'm like man it's gonna i mean i just i will remain optimistic about it 
and remain open-minded about it, but I was just terrified. But when I sat down in the theater to see it, it was just jaw-dropping and beyond anything I could have hoped for or expected. So, so you're, you're somebody who got to see both of them in theaters, which, yes. you know, we, we do occasionally have people who were lucky enough to do that on the show. And something that I always forget to ask these people, and now I can do it tonight, is what was the experience like of seeing 2049 in theaters as opposed to 2019? Was it similar? Was it different? Like, what did, what did it feel like to you? Uh, because it's a lengthy type of film, and because I was... I totally stayed away from I, I'm a person that does not like to watch a lot of trailers and a lot of teasers and that because you're, I that means you're a damn give away too much and right. so I saw 2049 on consecutive days <clears throat> the first one just taking it in taking it in and watching mm -hmm. it as it was meant to be seen and trying to understand all of the nuances and, and the subtleties of the script and the screenwriting and how it was constructed and being a film major, I'm trying to put that aside and just watch it as an entertainment and enjoyed it very much on that level. But when I went back to see it the second time, it was, it was much more emotional for me. It was, it was, I knew what was coming. Uh, the first time I saw the film, um, the the there were there were lots of great moments uh, uh when he when he find when he finds when he goes back and gets the horse out of, out of the furnace there um of course i patrick I've, i think i've related this to you but um that music cue at the end uh, when Kay is on the steps there and tears and rain comes in uh, I was just, I was just, I just lost it in the theater there. It was just so overwhelming and so emotional for me. And, and the second time viewing the film, there were a lot more emotions going on for me and that, that, that just a crescendo at that point in the film. It's just, it's a be it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's poetry on film. It's eye candy. It's eye candy doesn't do its service. It's just something gorgeous to look at. It's the most, amazing thing to look at visually to me since 300. I loved 300. That to me, it was like every frame of that was like a beautiful painting. I think that people totally. still don't necessarily appreciate how gorgeous that film is um, um, visually speaking. But this one uh, is also, it's one of those just jaw dropping cinematic experiences that you just, you know, you just, I've just left speechless watching it. Something I love about the ending, which which I, we've we've you know touched on in the past, and I'm sure we'll touch on it more as this new 2049 series unfolds. But I love how the whole movie has so many echoes of the first film that are going through it, and so many like you know clear references, obviously story references to it, but also just thematic references and image references. But it's all very kind of oblique. It's all just sort of just below the surface. And then at the end, when the theme comes out it's like such a literal moment of tying them together. Yeah. And like the journey of getting there is so hard won. And I really feel like that is such a, a testament to who Denis Villeneuve is as a filmmaker, like the, to, to be patient enough to give the, the benefit of the doubt to the audience that we, we will be picking up on those subtleties, that like we will be picking up on the crossovers between these two films that, that will be there with him as it's unfolding. And that way at the end, it won't feel like we're getting sm smacked on the head with this theme. It will feel like that theme emerged from our subconscious mm. as we watch mm -hmm. the ending of that film. Mm -hmm. That sense of like release at the end of that movie is yes. just like, I, I felt the same way. The, the first time I saw it, I remember I really was like, 
I, I was overwhelmed by it and I just decided to stop analyzing it and just, just start taking, taking it in. And that was, I, I, so that totally resonated what you were saying there. And the second time I was really trying to think like, what was it toward the end that would, that made me just lose it? Cause I could not, I couldn't even stand up as the credits were going. I just like sat there with my jaw down, you know? And I realized it was, it was hearing that music and that, in that final sequence with Kate and just, and just that sense of like, of this, it just, it, the enormity of that moment for me as a fan and for me as a film, a lover of, of great filmmaking like that, that is one of the most sublime moments on film I've seen in, in years and years and years, totally. Absolutely, and um, because there was a, a, a different choice with regard to the music and not rehashing or bringing Vangelis back, uh, uh, it, was, it was, they just saved it. It's like, you know, uh, this the music was 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 very much in keeping with what the storytelling was was going on and for me the fact that it was even more minimalistic and not as melodic as the first film kind of represented on a more subconscious level a further decay of where things had gone we had lost some of the richness and the the warmth as much as Los Angeles 2019 was, it had decayed even to a further point where it was a bit more, a bit colder, a bit more stark. But when that tears and rain, they just, they save it, they sit on it and save it. And the filmmakers are knowing we're going to be two and a half hours into this thing and then we're going to hit them with it. Then we're going to hit them with this theme, this one theme that's going to just absolutely drive home the emotion of what we're going for. And it was a brilliant choice. And it was so uh, a secret, so well kept uh, that it was just, just, just wonderful. Just an absolutely great moment. I'll, I'll never forget that as far as a cinematic experience. I was going to say that's that's a really great point about it being kind of unadorned. I think that's something that's easy to overlook. But we hear the tears and rain theme basically with nothing else going on other than this sort of melodic droning synth pad right underneath it. So you don't have all of the incredible Vangelis you know counterpoint and all the sounds and things it's just this this little melody and i and i before we move on from that something that is just sort of hitting me for the first time i don't know why as we're talking tonight is that um i think it's easy to focus on that as a moment of like death right but that like it's it's a clear reference to the to the deaths the great death scene in the first movie and that it's you know coming towards the end and it's this moment of of you know an ending of both the film and the and the arc of a character but i i think I think the point really there is the completion of a journey in some ways, right? Um, like that Roy, you know, went through this incredible interstellar journey across not only distance, you know, coming from Mars and everything, but, but also just across class and across expectation and across biology, you know, to get to this point where he's on this rooftop and he's able to die to, to, with this final act of mercy and life giving, right? There's also a sense of journey with Kay who like has gone through this incredible labyrinthine thing, right? And he's gotten to the end of it and the journey took him somewhere that wasn't where it was supposed to, to take him, right? It wasn't supposed to take him there. Like he had his moment of coming to terms with who he thought he really was, right? And in that moment, he found out that like, not only was he carrying this terrible secret, he thought, but that he was actually great and terrible all at the same time. And that's like a huge moment, right? And then the journey changes, right? And he realizes there's a deeper truth there and that the truth that he thought he knew wasn't what was true at all. And then he has a journey of like, 
honesty for that last 35 minutes of the film. Just like Roy, after he right. realizes like he cannot get more life, that like that's that's it, right? And his journey becomes transfigured. It becomes something new. And then that last arc of the movie for both of those characters is very different from the arc that they were set on at the beginning of, the, of their respective films. And they get to the completion of those arcs and you hear that one like beautiful, beautiful theme. And it signifies, I really don't think it signifies death. I think it signifies completion. And, mm-hmm. I, and I, uh, I, yeah, I hope we get to really spend a lot of time on that scene over the season because it's just absolutely incredible. What's really interesting about that moment with Kay is that Kay is both Roy and Deckard in that moment. Whereas you have at the end of the first film, you have Roy not preaching to Deckard, but teaching Deckard. That's the final moment of the teacher and the student. And then Deckard is transformed or he's pushed into transformation. But then you have Kay who embodies both of those um, where he, he knows he's learned to live a fuller life and he's also teaching Deckard and himself at the same time. It's very interesting. And I've been, I listened to the score of 2049 on my way home from work today. And I was, the music, you know, the boom, and then I was hearing everything and just all of the the cues and everything blasting. And I was thinking, obviously, of course, I'm black and back in Blade Runner without even thinking like when I hear that music, much like when I hear Vangelis, I'm back into the world that I'm very familiar with. And one thing that I've been processing a lot is um, the idea of what Blade Runner is. Is Blade Runner rain, congested, downtown LA, or is Blade Runner um, desolate, brutalist? What is it? Or is really, is Blade Runner a series of questions? What is the world? How do you accurately portray that world and do honor to it? And I ask those questions because I've read different people, some who might have been disappointed with 2049, thinking, oh, I missed this. I missed, you know, the congested streets of LA and it was just so different. But for me, as awesome as those things are in the original film, and of course you see many hints of those and or recreations of those in varying degrees in 2049, Blade Runner isn't any of those things for me. Blade Runner is the question, who are we? How do we be better humans? What is being human? Those questions. So you can bring those questions into whatever world and it can be Blade Runner. And, and again, I process those questions because I, I've, read a lot of famous, more famous directors saying, yeah, I watched Blade Runner 2049. It was interesting. And you can tell that they're pulling back and they're not really giving their full opinion because you could tell them maybe they're let down or it's not the vision of Blade Runner that they had in their head. But I feel like 2049 is really as Blade Runner as the beginning and has nothing to do with the sets or the props or the mood or the rain or the lack of rain or the blimps or the lack of blimps. It's really about a philosophical question. Mm. Who are we? How do we be better? And Mm -hmm. if you can, and I don't want to dictate to anyone, this is how you need to watch the film. And if you don't watch the film like this, then blah, 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 blah. I'm not going to say that, but I really, that approaching the film that way allows me to enjoy it more. That Blade Runner is, is a way of thinking the world that we inhabit, the world that intoxicates us and keeps us coming back to shows like this, um, 
lives in here. It doesn't live in the, those things might, might bring us comfort. They might be cool. It just like, I think about like, when we think about friends or family who have passed away, we don't think about the things that they owned. We don't think about how their bedroom looked. We think about who they were as a person. And I really feel like Blade Runner, the world of Blade Runner is a character like that, where it's almost a living and breathing thing that incorporates the many things that we love that Ridley Scott did, that Denis Villeneuve did, but really it's the journey of Kate, it's the journey of Rachel, it's the journey of Rich, uh, Rick Deckard. Um, I mean, let me preface this by saying I agree with you, but playing a little bit of devil's advocate, I think, you know, I think your point is great about the, about that, you know, when somebody passes, we don't think about like their things, we think about them as a person, but there is something though with like, you know, when, when, when family members of mine have passed, and I stumble across like a photo of them or I stumble across like, you know, my grandmother's, you know, uh, sweatshirt or something or, or something that, you know, like my, like my wife's, um, you know, grandmother just died uh, last year. And, um, and some of her, we, we have some of her possessions in our house, you know, right now, and they kind of smell like her a little bit. There are these like sense memory things that come sometimes with objects or come with the built environment that surrounds people. Um, and I think that for some people, and, and, I, and I'm saying this because I think that, the, the, some of the letters that we've received, not letters, but the emails that we received, you know, after the release of 2049 by some sort of like, you know, incensed fans of, of the first film who felt like it wasn't what they were expecting. A lot of them were talking about the aesthetic differences being substantial enough to disrupt their appreciation of the movie. Because I think for some people, their, their Blade Runner is so wrapped up in that world and they're so desperate to kind of revisit it that if they're not allowed to, if they're given something that's Blade Runner, but it's not actually taking them back into that environment again, it feels like um, almost like there's no going home again. You know, it's like their grandmother's sweatshirt is lost in a, when they moved and they can never find it. It's just, it's, I do think that there's something something to that. But, but you know, we're not, in any event, I do agree with you. I, I don't watch the film in that way. Um, and Craig, I want to get to you on this too. But before I do, just something I wanted to mention before I forget is today I finally got to pick up the latest copy of the comic book. Nice. Uh, and, and this is to me like a great example of why Blade Runner is not just an aesthetic or why it's not just an environment. Because the first four issues of this comic are really about creating a comic that feels like LA 2019, that feels like it's in that, you know, and it feels great and it feels gritty and it feels noir and it's great storytelling, but it feels like Blade Runner, you know, not just thematically, it feels like it in terms of the, the aesthetic of what's happening. And then since then, it's been nothing at all like that. They've been, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to spoil things, but they, they've not been in the environment that we're used to seeing Blade Runner take place in. And it feels like more like Blade Runner than ever because the themes and the questions that they're asking are, are so timeless. But I guess that's neither here nor there. Um, I did want to mention that because uh, the reason why I'm just getting it today is because comic book printing and distribution has been shut down for a month and a half now. There are, you cannot buy a new released comic book. So I had to have our comic shop just send me the one that they were holding from us from before lockdown started that I never got to pick up. So like there is no new Blade Runner issue out because there's no printing, because there's no distribution, because it's unsafe. And I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm sitting here with this thing that has you know, traveled and finally made its way to me. And I'm thinking of how extraordinary this moment is that like, I'm reading about this incredible dystopian future and, uh, and I'm holding it in my hand in some ways, you know, that the world is so different right now than it was just in the beginning of March that since then so much has changed. And it just is uh, really reverberating with me. But anyway, Craig, um, for you, 
as somebody who had a lot of time with that original film, who got to see it in theaters, who got to like love it and you know have this very personal with the relationship. Yeah, with the, the original, narration. The original, original version. Right. Did you feel any of that sense of, uh, like, were you ever, did you ever feel like, oh, this isn't Blade Runner to me when you saw 2049? Did it not feel, like, appropriate to you? No, I, I didn't at all. And, I mean, when we were in the urban, uh, urban settings of uh, 2049, um, I felt that that was, that, we were just not, as uh it wasn't as claustrophobic as the first film but to me it was just a different it was just a different story it's much like assembly is taking a a, a a set of characters and we're going somewhere all the rest of the world is still going on that all that world that was created is still going on but we're in a different location for this particular portion of the story and i never had a problem with that no yeah, you know, I think my, in terms of the comics, and I've read, I need to finish the last few, the last one or two, I can't remember. But what actually detracts me from the comics is they've recreated the world again. They went back to the, I feel like I've seen that, I've moved on, I don't want to see it again. Not that I don't want to see it again, because the story that they've written is good. It's well done. It's It's very unique and different, and it's interesting. But my fear, I think, with the comic as it relates to Alcon and the owners of the IP is that we have to keep this 2019. We have to keep it familiar to people as opposed to actually you don't. You can do something different. And I, I don't, I, I'm not, I'm a nostalgic person. I mean, I live in nostalgia in many ways. I mean, most of my, when I have my bedroom set up and we're moving. Um, is full of things in my life or movies or things that bring me joy and happiness. And it's all nostalgia. I get it. Um, but I do feel, and I think a turning point for me was actually you, Patrick, because of the discussion that we had about bringing Ripley back for another Alien film and um, disregarding Alien 3, even though I loved Alien 3 as my favorite film and all that. But I really think that nostalgia, stepping back into something that's familiar is unless it's done the way Denis Villeneuve did it, because there were things that were familiar in that film in terms of aesthetics, in terms of winks, whether it was the woman with the, the, like the Ash Wednesday thing in the middle of her forehead um, on the billboard, which was reminiscent of the, the geisha in the original. There are a lot of things in 2049 that are a direct uh, correlation to 2019. Absolutely. You can't get around it. That conjure when they're on the roof and you hear the, the woman in the billboard in the background and you hear the music and the rain falling in the, in the big Japanese. I mean, you can't get more Blade Runner than that. And that was a very oh. long scene. There's, it's just amazing. However, I think stories need to go forward, not go backward. And I don't like, just like, I don't think I'd want to go back into the Wallace corporation the same way we did in um, 2049. We've seen that. Let's go somewhere else. Actually, to be honest with you, I hope the next, if there's another Blade Runner film, it has nothing to do with any events that we've seen. Start telling a new story. Maybe don't follow a Blade Runner. Maybe follow a replicant. Maybe do something completely different. But I, and I feel like 
some people or some audiences, and this is not a bad thing per se, I don't like terms good or bad, but we have to be able to allow stories to evolve and to change, just like we have to allow characters to change. And that's hard for people, especially people who find comfort in movies. They want to be comforted by something that they know. And when that's different, they're like, oh, what is this? I'm not really sure. Um, it's a tricky thing. It really is. And we've seen nostalgia for the sake of nostalgia happen in the Star Wars movies. And they're like, oh, okay, they're kind of fun, but we've seen it all before. Old, new characters doing old things next, you know, whereas really Denis brought and Michael Green and Hampton Fancher, of course, the original writer, they were able to create a new character exploring new things in a new world. And it felt like Blade Runner. And that's impossible to do, um, especially for, so I just, I feel like people have to come to this place where not that they, you have to love everything. You don't have to love everything. It's okay. We can have our we can have differing opinions. That's what, that's what makes us who we are. Um, but I also feel like we should be able to allow ourselves to explore something new without it being comforting us, you know? I don't know. No, I think I, I totally agree with you. And I think that that, in essence, was what my fears were, as we were talking before about when I had heard that they were going to make 2049. I think that that's exactly kind of like, uh, I don't know that I want to go back. I don't know that I want to too much go back to that film. But what uh, Villeneuve and the screenwriters brought to 2049 was just this, in addition to the themes that were already there, some new things. I, I love the idea of the holograms. Um, to me, the holograms are to the replicants what the replicants are to the humans. It's just, it's like th there's this, there's this new layer of, of AI and that, and, and when Joy gets, you know, when her uh, replicator there gets crushed, I mean, you feel, you feel an emotion and why, what is, what's there, what's there? It's, 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 it's a program in that. And I mean, we, felt a, an emotion for the replicants in the original film. And so you can continue to stack these as, we, as, as technology and that all continues to change. It's just an endless world. I just saw an article uh, just this past week about this replica, the R-E-P-L-I-K-A, which is the artificial intelligence companion in that. And um, it's that's, you know, our, where we're going, the themes that we're exploring on, on that, I think that they took it to the next level. They weren't satisfied to stay, they revisit, and they, certainly the influences of the first film were there, but 2049 then expanded on that and brought new things to the table. And um, here's something that I, would, I was dying to, to be able to contribute, and since I have you guys all to myself, here's my big chance. COVID-19 and how it has, how it is keeping us from touch. To me, one of the things I remember when I was watching 2049, the relationship between Joy and Kay was just that longing for human touch. It's heartbreaking when they go out in the rain and they're miming there, and it takes a while before you realize, is she touching him? Is she not touching him? Is, does he feel anything? Does he not? And then you get that, you get that realization. No, no, he's, he's having to mime this whole thing. He's having to imagine it. And um, 
the the, the scene the uh, the scene when then um, uh, um, where the prostitute is hired and they come in and and, and they have uh, obviously they're having sexual relations to try to to get that physical feeling. To me, that was one of the most amazing themes of the new film was how important human touch is. Um, you know, in the first film, what's real? Uh, but in this film, for me, it was more that human interaction. And I think that the introduction of the Joy character to me was just a tremendous thing to say when you're able to hold somebody in your arms, when you're able to look them in the eye and feel them, you can have a great relationship. At the, oh my God, it's such an important part of who we are and uh, and and in relationships with others and 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 a fulfilling relationship. Um, that to me was one of the beautiful, beautiful poetic uh, themes of 2049. And then oh, with like this COVID-19, you know, we've, we're being held back. We're, we have a barrier built around us and, and we've lost that sense of touch. It's kind of ironic. And not only have we lost the sense of touch, but we've had to recontextualize how we think of other people, right? Which to me is something that, I don't know if this has come up on the show or either of the shows yet, but, or maybe just when I've been speaking with Jamie and, you know, and other threads, but um, to me, one of the, one of the freakiest moments uh, early on was the first time somebody distanced themselves from me when I was talking to them outside, which was really early. It was like right, you know, as like this, you know, quarantine stuff was starting and it's hard to put ourselves back in that headspace because you know, we've been living with this new normal now for like eight weeks, but there was a time when it was just like, wash your hands. Do you remember that? Like, mm -hmm. like the guidance was like masks are, you know, unnecessary. Don't buy them. You know, there'll be, you know, medical professionals need them. Don't make masks. Like you don't need this. This isn't really even airborne. It's about touch. So make sure you just wash your hands. And remember that everybody's like, just wash your hands. It's all you need to do. So, but then there were other people who were saying like, well, maybe it's more than just hand washing. There could be an airborne element to this. And it was very early on in that context. And I was speaking with our neighbor outside who I see, you know, every day she's in her garden, you know, and I'm, I'm always outside going for walks or with the kids going on bikes, et cetera, you know? And so we always like, pass and have a little catch up moment. And, um, and we were talking and as we were talking, she was like shifting away from me. And, uh, and I was like, I have never, I've never like seen that happen before. And now, of course, every, literally every interaction I have with anybody is like that. Anybody that I'm not living with is, you, you know, like I had to go into a CVS today and it was like you would think you were in the middle of, you know, a war zone because every single decision that I made was based on whether or not there was somebody else I was going to have to get close to, right? Like, and this is all pre preaching the choir because we're all, we're all going through this constantly. Like, mm -hmm. you know, it's not breaking news to anybody, but it's something that I'm still trying to, um, to not be... Uh, numbed to because i think it's important to realize exactly what you're saying craig which is that this disruption in the tactile this complete severance of normal human physical interactions with people even just being in proximity to other people has been so strange and so unsettling and i think part of why joy is like the breakout character of that film for people like she's she's the one who everybody always ends up talking about all the all the latest the the, the conversations that go on the longest into the night seem to have joy at some point you know involved in them um i think part of it is because she hits a lot of these buttons for us and one of those buttons is like 
in the absence of, you know, you have basically, you know, a, a replicant, you have this artificial construct who is in love with an artificial construct designed to keep artificial constructs happy, right? So you have, like you were saying, two layers of removal away from a typical mm -hmm. human experience, right? And yet their love in all outward ways for most people, I'm not going to say all people, but for most people at least resembles genuine human love, right? It at least feels like it's a, re it's a real love story. And yet when she's outside and the rain is falling and her hologram is adjusting itself, you're aware that it's adjusting itself to make it look like the raindrops are actually landing on her when they're not. Because you right. see as her hand turns over and it's a beautiful moment that might as well be a, you know, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers outside in the rain, right? It's, it's just like a classic Hollywood moment. And yet you see the little pixels on her hologram are adjusting to show raindrops, right? And to her, in her Pinocchio-like existence, right, that is amazing, that is real. And to Kay, who has no other option than to assume that it's real and to live with that assumption to be sane, treats it as something real, even though he knows that he just bought her that device, right? Even though he knows this is something that he did as a construct to make his life less constructed, right? Right. And yet they, whether they choose or they don't choose, and again, this is joy, so there's a lot of questions in this, you know, whatever, but there's, there's like, there's something that feels like a choice going on there to treat that moment as real. And for whatever reason, I think that really hits people hard because it makes us question like what we think determines real and determines, you know, the human. And I think in the absence of being able to actually have human to human love in that environment, the fact that they are searching for such an accurate facsimile of it says a shitload to me. Um, and what's so funny is that I don't even know what that shitload is, but there is that shitload there. There's that thing that makes me want to stay up all night talking about it. You know, the right. fact that even though they know what their situation is and they're aware of it, Joy, I don't think lives under any preconception that she's anything other than this AI construct. She, I don't think she thinks she's actually real, but you know, who knows? Um, I think she understands what her place is in this society. She understands that she's, you know, basically, you know, something that's created to bring pleasure to somebody. Um, even in that environment, they seem to go to extraordinary lengths to produce some reasonable facsimile of human-to-human -human physical love. And there's something incredibly potent about that, I think. I'm a little surprised that at some point, and may have been in the script, because there was, I know there was an awful lot of film that we're only, uh, we're only given a small portion, and Denis has uh, repeatedly said that we will never see an expanded version of it. But I could almost imagine a scene of Kay out and about and seeing multiple joys because you know he sees the ad of course with the black eyes because he the uh, the, the owner uh, hasn't chosen what color eyes you can choose whatever color eyes you want i'm sure um but uh, that might have uh, i think that the the moment when he pauses and sees the giant hologram um is heartbreaking enough but it could have also been a very cold and and um slap in the face to see somebody else with their own version of joy walking around and maybe you see two or three of them and then you get to realize the fact that his joy special to him but in the larger scope of things not all that special that there are other versions of her walking around love that idea their relationship is excruciating i think because they're together but apart where they're right next to each other they can't touch. And that's got it. And it's, you see it, that scene where Kay's on the roof and he's just doing what he can to get in there, yeah. but he can't. He's yeah. right next to her, but there's nothing there. 
you know, and it's, it's painful. It's painful it for me. very painful. Um, and, and yet they me, pantomime like the it, most, though. Yeah, that was they one pantomime of the They pantomime it, and the pantomime is even worse to me. But they still do, which is so fascinating, because there's no reason they that have. they necessarily should, right? But, 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 to, but to them, as two constructed things, they, they, to them, like, that's what love looks like. Exactly. Being, right? That is Kay's way of, of uh, outwardly showing his love, because if he didn't, he wouldn't go through the motions, but he goes through the motions. He tries to match her move for move. And that to me is saying something very, very powerful about their relationship. And that, that it was, she was more than just this uh, product that he bought, that he had an actual uh, an emotional, uh, very strong emotional attachment to her. I think it's, a, it's just, it's beautiful. It's poetic. It, it really is. Something that um, I, I, I don't I, if I've brought this up before when we've talked about joy, just just shut me up um, or don't because we've I don't know we've done so many joy episodes that I can't remember at this point. But something that I I, I always think about when I think about joy is is the Pygmalion story, which um, for people who aren't familiar with it, P Pygmalion is based on an ancient Greek myth. But uh, it was the, the the play Pygmalion is from George Bernard Shaw, uh, and it, uh, there's also a there's a you know 19th century British operetta version of it and things. It's a story that sort of resonated through centuries. But the basic idea is that a sculptor falls in love with one of the sculptures who comes to life. And it's usually played as a comedy, but, uh, but there's something in that comedy that I've always found hits a similar part in my brain as the Joy K situation, which is that like, what they're experiencing is, is love, or at least it outwardly, it appears to be something loving. But to accept it, as being love is to say that this sort of insane view of love is, is accurate for them. So I, let me say it better. So to fall in love with a sculpture is to fall in love, right? Like you're still falling in love, but it's with the sculpture. So there's underneath the beautiful, simple, simple act of, of being in love with something, you're in love with an, an, you know, an object that at least when you fall in love with it is inanimate, right? That you've actually created, you know you created it. You've actually chiseled it with your own hands. And then you fell in love with something like that, right? And, uh, and so it's, it's beautiful, but it's crazy. And there's something with Joy and Kay that like Kay knows exactly what Joy is because he bought her, you know? And then he also got a bonus so that, you know, he could allow her to have some degree of freedom. Like he, he, he is not confused about what that arrangement is, but he is, at least as far as we can tell, genuinely in love with that arrangement that he has. And it's a very real thing for him. And so there, there is something there that reminds me of that George Bernard Shaw play, which is that like, and it's not funny, it's really fucking sad and really beautiful. And, uh, and it touches on some ineffable deeper truth about the human condition that uh, I think is what makes great art, great art. And I think that's why we keep talking about Joy and Kay so much is because there's something about that that keeps us coming back. At the heart of the movie, Yeah, man. In light of, we've touched on this before, in light of what's happening in the world right now and the social distancing, and it's not just social distancing, it's the, essentially the, I mean, we're just not out able to touch or in, intermingle with other people. We just can't do it. That's rough. And um, it's, it's, what's interesting about 2049 is that it's all over when, jo when Joshi comes to Kay's apartment, she's way on one side of his apartment, he's way on another, and he's not facing her. Um, the distance there is hard to watch. It's a very uncomfortable scene. 
um, not just because of the dialogue, just because of the spacing. And then you see Celine, there's always distance with people. There's the distance between Kay and the clerk at Wallace's place. There's just distance. And even when there's close distance, there's psychological and emotional distance between whether Kay is right next to Love and they're talking, but they're not really talking. They're not connecting, even though she's trying to. He's not, he's not having it because that's not essentially what he's programmed for. Um, you know, I noticed those things in 2049 now in ways that I haven't before. And it's harder to watch, to be honest with you, especially Staline's scene and seeing her behind closed doors because of some condition that she has. And here we all are living like that in our own way, you know, or seeing photos all over social media, people behind glass saying hello to their parents, saying hello to their neighbors because they can't come in their homes because yeah. there's a virus out. You know, it's intense to there see those pictures. The last image, images. yes, the last image that you see of Deckard is his hand on the window, um, or the the glass, and Celine is looking at him, and mm. that image you're seeing everywhere right now, um, and that's tough to deal with. I know, even personally, like I, um, I have a bunch of friends locally that I've known for like 20 years, and uh, they have a church. It's very informal. It's just essentially a meet. We sit down, we have brunch, and we just hang out. Um, and we do that every Sunday, and I haven't seen them in weeks, you know. And it's driving me crazy that I haven't been able to see any of my friends in a long time. I mean, I go to work because I'm essential, and I see people, I see my clients, but they're, most of them are de developmentally disabled, so it's not like your friends and your family. I live with my family, but everyone here is quarantined. You know, no one goes out except for me. Um, and it's, I, I think about the world of Blade Runner 2049 a lot these days, and just the idea that we want a deeper experience, but right now we can't have it. So we're doing our best. Kay was doing his best with joy to have a deeper experience with whatever she was. Um, and it's still, it to me, their relationship never seemed full. It seemed empty. It seemed, he seemed lonely. He seemed like a lonely, lonely man. Um, and he came home and she brought him a little bit of comfort, but he was still a, a very lonely, isolated man. And she just accentuated that for me. She didn't make things better, but it's always ongoing. I don't know if I'll ever view that relationship as anything different than that. Um, and that's probably my own, and I've discussed this before, it's probably just my own, what I bring to the table. And that's all that is, as opposed to, I mean, I think some of the first conversations we had, Patrick, about joy was me saying, you know, you and Micah are married and you enjoy that. And so you can view Kay's relationship with joy very differently than I would. Um, and I think great art does that. Great art sort of, oh yeah, it's like water. It becomes- That's the point, you know? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's living. Art is living and it becomes different things for different people. Yeah, if we all watched 2049 and saw the same things in it, then it wouldn't be a Blade Runner movie, right? That, that's why this works so well as a Blade Runner film is because a thousand people can watch it and have a thousand different interpretations of it. That's why there are multiple philosophy books dedicated to it in the, in the three years since it's come out. I mean, you can talk about these ideas. For, that's why we have a podcast, you know, with coming up on 100 episodes or wherever we are right now. It's like, it's, you know, you can do this stuff forever. Um, something I, I had a, a specific, actually a, a couple of 2049 moments today. Um, 
One was because somebody mentioned Sepulveda Boulevard and I was just, <laughs> it, it brought me back for one thing to November, right? To, you know, being in Los Angeles and seeing Sepulveda, but also to the Sepulveda wall and to the scenes in 2049 and just thinking about, you know, where they would be in relation to the geography of contemporary Los Angeles and realizing that I had never been to contemporary Los Angeles until this podcast. And now I've been there a few times. And, uh, and you know, when I saw 2049, you know, I had never actually been there before. And now it's like a place that I, I recognize landmarks from when I see it in films. And so it just, the, the, I had this thought today about the journey of my life vis-a-vis this podcast and vis-a-vis 2049. And it was just a nice little moment. That's, a, that's a one thing. But the other thing is when I was driving to CVS, which for me, so for me, I have not been going into work now, going on eight weeks. Um, for a while, I was, I was able to uh, continue my singing gig, but it was like we were wearing masks, we were wearing gloves, we were in a quarantine situation with curtain rods, we stood far apart in this big room, you know, uh, not facing, we had to face away from each other to do these live streams. It was just so strange, but it was like the only interaction that I had with other people other than my wife and kids. So it was, there was something about it that felt like, although it was kind of anxiety producing, it was like, at least it was, it was something that wasn't just these walls and this immediate environment, right? But now we aren't doing that anymore because in Massachusetts, where I am, the cases are still um, horrible. Like it's, it's really just it, because of our proximity to New York and because of other factors, even though we've been doing really great with quarantine and lockdown, there's still just like we have significantly more cases than all of California does. And we're, you know, one tenth the size of you guys. It's just, it sucks. So we've had to stop doing that for the last three weeks now. So, so that's also gone in my life. And yesterday, the priest was asking us, he was like, do you think we can get to a place where we can try to, to do this again? And I said, no. And it, and it really hurt me to say that, but I, I, I just don't think, I don't think it's okay to do that out here right now. We have an exponential growth in cases in our town, which is still, there's only 25 confirmed cases in our town, but it was 16 cases last week. And it doesn't take a genius to realize that that's nearly twice. And that means we're on a fucking exponential curve again. So like, you know, it's just, it's this sense of, of a self-imposed isolation, even though, even though I knew I could trust the people that I was there with, and even though I knew we knew what to do, I don't feel comfortable enough anymore doing it in this environment. And so I was driving to CVS today, which the long-winded way of getting back to this point, which was like the only time I've left the house now in any real way in, in a long, like, I mean, days, really. And, uh, and I was driving on the road, and like I saw other cars and I was just so aware of how, like, I'm not going to interact with those people in those other cars. Like, we will not, like, if we get off at the same exit and end up in that same parking lot, like, I'm not going to talk to them. I will park on the other side of the parking lot and wait for them to go inside. And I was just having these moments where I was driving by people. And you know how you have these, like, these really kind of passive, like, moments where, you know, I remember when I was a kid, I'm kind of freewheeling here because it's a late night show and we got three friends on and we can talk about whatever we want to talk about. When I was a kid, I used to sit in the back seat of my parents' car, you know, and look out the window and imagine stories of all the cars that were passing by. Did you guys ever do that growing sure. up? You just sort of look out and think like, where are they going? Totally. Where are they coming from? I do that like, still. Yeah, I do that that's still why, too. That's why I love driving. airports. Yeah, right? Just just that, that, that idea of like, there's this incredible wealth of stories out there that like, we don't have access to, but we can, we can kind of picture. So yeah, I still do that too. And, uh, and today, when I was doing that, I was just struck by the distance between me and those other people in those cars and how like, I felt like their story was more obscured to me now. Like, I, didn't, I felt like there's just this wall between us. And it really felt like 2049 when Kate is flying over Los Angeles and there are so many fewer spinners up. Like it's, it's a much sparser environment in terms of the amount of air traffic. But there is other 
traffic, there's other ships, there's other vessels, there's other things going on. And they're all like far away from each other. And they're all like very clearly at a distance, you know? When he goes to the scrap heap, to the, um, not the scrap heap, the, uh, the trash, what the hell is it called? The trash mesa. Then he goes to the trash mesa, trash right? Mesa, yeah. And there's just no other traffic near him. And he's just driving out in this endless gray void. Um, and I was just driving today and, you know, and I was thinking how much this movie feels so accurate for this moment. Whereas in 2019, like we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, like if that's a movie of proximity, you know, like everybody's up in each other's shit. And the only reason why they don't, you know, necessarily bond with each other other than the fact that they're overpopulated is because they can't speak the same. They don't know what anybody's saying because they're all speaking different pidgin languages and it doesn't make any sense to anybody. Right. So it's just all these people in this kind of crush, but it's all these people. Right. And in 2049, it's very much a movie of distance to me. It's very much a movie of uh, everybody is culturally separated. They're prox- in terms of you know geography, they're separated. And in terms of relationships, they're separated. And it feels so accurate. And I, and I find myself dwelling on that movie a lot more than usual lately. It's a hard reality to live in. It really is. I mean, who would have thought? I mean, I... It feels like it was a few days ago where we, Patrick and I and Dan have had this discussion, Craig, in terms of Patrick went to Canada um, uh, on a vacation with his wife and his kids were back. And I remember when you were leaving, I was thinking, I was afraid, but I didn't say anything. Not afraid, but like worried, like, I hope they let him back in this country. I hope Mm. they let him back in because it was very possible that they could say, nope, sorry, we're not. Well, we, we were worried think, too, and, and we were trying to get a hold of the border patrol people at the Canadian border, and they could—they didn't have an answer for us. And we and were that, like, "Are yeah. we going to be able to get across?" And they were like, "We don't really know, honestly. Oh, you just wow. have to come here and try." Yeah, and that feels like it was six months ago to me. Um, and then that night, Dan and, and Patrick got on Skype, and we just hung out and took a breath because the world was like falling apart. Really, I mean, and and it's um, it's strange. I mean, I. I was driving today because again I drive towards LA for my work every day. There's a lot more cars in the road than I've seen lately. Like way more cars in the road than I've seen lately. There's actually a traffic jam yesterday on my way home from work. I'm like, what's going on right now? Um, but it's just, um, I think someone we, we all. I don't know what your situation is, Craig, in terms of how many people you live with, whether it's just you and your wife, or how many people you see on a day to day or week to week basis, but. I'm someone who I don't have a lot of social contact. So I live off the little that I do. And so when that's even when that's taken away, it's even a tougher existence, you know, and I, I was watching the protesters today, in I think it was Huntington Beach and Orange County. And I was looking at them thinking, Oh, well, I hope you guys stay healthy. But I mean, there's 1000s of them all together, I'm intermingling. But part of me was like, I understand what's going on here. How long can we do this? How long can we do this? How long can we live without, like how long can the economy survive without people like running their businesses, seeing other people, how long can we do it? And I'm myself, I'm right there. I'm like, I get what they're frustrated over. I don't know what the answer is right now, except for we need to all stay safe, but I want out of this too. and the reality of Blade Runner 2049 is that's the norm. People do not interact with each other. People and the people who are healthy and who can afford it, they're off world. They're completely, they're done with earth. They're gone. They've, they've left it. And they've left the earth for the little people, the, the poor people, 
the impoverished people, the police. Um, and then the people who maybe who are rich are like uh, Neander Wallace, who he lives in this wooden, you know, um, cement tower where in the interior is like a whole different world. I mean, when you're in Wallace Tower, you feel like you're in this, who knows where you could be on another world. You could be on, it could be an, like an off world colony. It's just so different than the rest of LA. Um, it's not a world that I like living in. It really, really isn't. Um, it's You're saying how, how long can we do this? But one thing that occurs to me, and I don't know, um, you both have kind of explained the situations that you're in. I don't know if that being in Roanoke, Virginia, we have our own situation. I don't know that it feels quite as intense as what you gentlemen are describing, but not only how long can we, can people do this? And, and we do think about, I think about the protesters, but what happens when this happens again? Because it will happen again. Maybe we'll be a little bit more prepared for it. Maybe people will take things a bit more seriously at the outset instead of waiting for things to already have started to snowball. But the reality is that this type of thing is going to happen again. And every time that it happens, are we going to shut down the world? Um, I don't know that that's, that's a very healthy way for us to go on. Um, and yet I don't have all the answers, but you know, I'm, I am more of the, of the thought of wanting to see things to get back to some kind of a new normalcy and, um, and, and then let the chips fall where they may, that may sound a little cold, but um, that's, that's just the reality of how I feel about things. I'm, I am all for, um, uh, starting the interactions again and with new safeguards in place. Um, if we all, uh, you know, uh, if you're ill, then you need to take, you need to be a bit more responsible and take yourself out of the loop. Now, again, you're putting a lot of faith in other, in other human beings for being responsible when things like that come up. Um, but how, um, you know, I'm 60 years old. I don't want to spend the, the last of my life in a, in a bubble all the time. I want to be out. I want to be doing things. And, um, uh, this has been a very, very interesting experience, um, something that I'm not happy to, to, re to really be living through. And yet, um, there it is. This is, this is the, the cards that we've all been dealt. And how do we move on from this in, a, in an intelligent way into this new normalcy? But um, I don't think that we can live in isolation for too terribly much longer. Um, I, 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 I see that we start introducing um, in ease and restrictions, and I know we're getting way off the topic of Blade Runner, but just to kind of to complete the thought on this, ease off on the restrictions. Keep an eye on 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 the uh, demand for our medical facilities, and then ease off a little bit more, and ease off a little bit more with a, like a two week in, in two week intervals to see if we see a spike, and if we see something that's then causing a an immediate rise, eh, then we've got to go back to and reinstate a restriction. You know, there's smart ways to do this, but um, I think that we've we've gone long enough, and I think it, the time is uh, right around the corner that we need to go into this new normalcy and 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 see what this new world is going to be like for us. Yeah, I definitely think that the next time this happens, because you're right, it, it is going to happen. That we, if we don't learn from the places that have been more successful with this then we are so fucking stupid I, like i'm sorry but there are there are many places in the world that shut it down within weeks of the first case 
and I'm and I know that the United States is a very complicated place. I know we're a large country with a lot of different factions and a lot of different state-run initiatives, and that it's a very complicated place. And like I get that, um, but there but there are success stories out there, and and I and I really hope that we learn from them before this happens again. But to to your point about opening up again, so I I do agree that it is a little nuts that there are you know for entire states that are having blanket protocols that affect everybody even though the states are really geographically diverse and there's really there's you know there are places like in new york even for example right new york city has had this incredible nightmare of a time with it but but upstate new york you know they've had like there are there are towns where there have been no cases there are counties where there's been like 12 cases i and, and they are still you know subject to the same exact shutdown protocols as new york city is which has had tens of thousands of deaths right so like so that I can totally see like that that that's like an opportunity to open things up a little bit more and and I, I I totally am on board with that. But there's this deeper thing looming, which is that if we mess this up, which is a very frightening thought, that like the next wave will be in October and like this will be much deadlier because we will have uh, you know basically in the midst of these because a lot of the states that are opening up now, of course, are still like really ascending that exponential curve I was talking about. Right. And in the midst of this upward trajectory, they're opening stuff up again, and that is that's I mean it's literally going to murder people. Like that will that will kill people, uh, and it's a calculus. It's like is the is the economy of that state important enough to willfully write off hundreds of people's lives, if not thousands of people's lives? That's that's a decision that state gets to make, right? Um, but uh, I just, I, it's, it's just, it's just extraordinary that we're even in a place where we're having conversations like this because two months ago, this was just such a fantasy scenario for all of us. This was something that just seems so far off and there will never be another day in any of our lives where that will be the case. There will never be a day in the rest of my life where I will not be able to imagine what this is like, where I will hear a story about a SARS epidemic somewhere and or a MERS thing, and, and and I will just think of it as like, oh, that's just you know, that's just in Asia, that's just this you know far off thing. No, it is fucking here. It's in our lives now, and that doesn't go away. And my children, who are so little, you know, like this is this is their this is their lives. Like like I, I mean, I was just we were just on the phone with some on, on another Zoom call before this with some old friends of ours, and all of us have young kids. We were just talking about how, uh, you know, so for our, our six year old. He, he understands everything about the virus. Like he knows just about as much as we do about it because in their classes, they talk about it. He knows that like, this is one of many viruses in the coronavirus family. He knows about what it sticks surfaces. He knows all this shit because, you know, kids are curious and they like to talk about this and their teachers allows them to learn about it because it's a good idea to learn about science, you know, if you're living through it, right? So for him, like he has an intellectual understanding of what's going on for the most part. I'm sure the economic stuff doesn't matter to him, but you know, he, he understands the, what, why we're doing this. Um, and he also has now been out of school for two months and he's looking at another five months of being out of school, <laughs> like another five months of not being back in school. And he's six. That is such a huge chunk of his life, let alone our three-year-old who also has been out for the same amount of time from his preschool, right? Um, and is now looking at another, you know, four or five months of not being back in school again. And, uh, and like, that is just, it is such a huge proportion of their, of their lives that is so disrupted. And so between that and the fact that now, like I was saying to, to Jamie earlier, like, I, I mean, you know, we're, we're homeschooling our kids too now, in addition to working full-time from home, in addition to all the other realities of what, what it's like to maintain a household when 
you know, you're living there all the time and running out of food all the time and everything's a mess like all the time. And my wife is days away from finishing nursing school and she's in finals all the time. And I'm like, when, do, when, do, when does this stop? Like, I am so fucking stir crazy right now. And I've been here for such a long time and there's so much left of this. And that's why I'm saying that like, even that, even as this lets up, like, and, and I hope that we do not, that we never take for granted again, the ease with which we have previously navigated our lives. I hope we never take for granted again when we don't have to sidestep people and pretend like they're weapons of mass destruction in a supermarket because they kind of are just by virtue of being alive in this environment. Like, I hope that I never again take that for granted. One of the first things I said when this happened, I remember I said this to Jamie and Dan, was um, I, like, I couldn't get over how every time I was on a call with somebody from work or from old friends or something, we looked so genuinely grateful to see each other's faces again. And like, and I really hope that I, I maintain that going forward. Like, Getting to see you, Craig, tonight, somebody that I've, you know, had this wonderful online relationship with now for so long, we've been talking for, you know, two years or whatever it is now, getting to actually just see you and interact with you, that is a wonderful gift. And that is something that I hope, I, I hope that, like, I don't forget that, that we're really lucky to have moments like this in our lives now. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, to have the both of you to myself for an evening, what a treat this is for me. Uh, as you as you can see, you you guys are much more, more well lit. You've got your microphones right here. <laughs> I'm not and really I was well expecting well to be like one of like 50 people tuning in. So I'm just using my built-in camera and my built-in microphone. I'm sure I sound horrible. I, I didn't, I, you know, I look, I know people aren't, that this won't be a, a, a repeat uh, uh, of the Zoom, but but the audio will still certainly come through. But um, yeah, I this has been a real a real rare treat, and uh, and I appreciate it. But yeah, the interaction here this is a, this is a very welcome, very welcome thing. Well, we're glad to have you on. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting, you know, I to love what we love in terms of the movies that we love and patrick and i have a lot in common all three of us when dan's here we have we all have a lot in common but patrick and i have a really a lot in common in terms of the types of films we like the types of sci-fi that we like the types of um hmm, just the almost the emotional quality of the stuff that we like we're very similar in that way and um so to it's almost a cognitive dissonance for me. Like I go out into to my days and I almost forget that we live this way because I'm out and I'm driving and I'm seeing, you know, I, and then I come home and then I sort of see everything and everyone responding and everyone's posting and they're updating what they've done in the day. And, you know, um, and I see unfolding on social media, this science fiction world that I've watched in film before and and then like today like and there was a report out in sweden saying sweden has had the highest death toll in the 21st century in, in seven days 2500 people died between april 1st and april 6th and they had just reported a couple days ago that oh sweden didn't close down uh, sorry about that light it's blinking on and off sweden didn't close down and they're doing the herd thing the herd what what are they calling it the herd herd immunity herd immunity and they're talking about that it was working when in fact it has not been working when in fact people have been dying in sweden was like well we'll just leave that up to everyone to be responsible and look what's happened right the yeah. highest death toll 
more than America, more than Italy, more than China in one week. Uh, because they I had not heard that. So that's you're you're reporting the news to me right now. Yeah. And I so it was a little sobering to me, like, well, here is evidence of when you let people think that they know best. Not that I don't want a government coming in and saying you can't do this, because that's not who we are as people. That's not America. But what do you do? What do you do? I don't know what but you do. There are moments where I feel like I'm crawling out of my skin sometimes still. Like and, and this this is coming out of I think our different experiences a little bit because today you were you were mentioning how you feel like there's kind of this like almost like we're kind of turning a corner and people the stir craziness is kind of starting to set in more a little mm-hmm. bit and I and I was thinking to myself like I I I've, I've been feeling that since the very first week of this because of my limited you know excursions. yeah and I again I drive to to work every day so I'm right, driving right right I drive you know 500 miles a week back and forth to clients so i don't right. so my experience of that is a little bit different than yours so i totally hear you that that could be that could be why it's a little bit different but i was but like i still to this day like like i i had this 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 sort of incipient anxiety that creeps in because like i i realized that i can't change this situation at all that like that i am that tomorrow i'm going to wake up and i'm still going to be doing this <laughs> like we're not going to go do something tomorrow. Like we are going to be stuck in our house and in our immediate vicinity. And like that, that's not, that's not changing. And if I, and if I go in contradiction of that, I'll get potentially arrested or at least detained by, by police officers. Like when we went across state lines, the only time we've done that um, last week, we had to like tell the state police that we were doing that. So they would have our license plate and they would know that because you, you have to mandatorily quarantine for 14 days in this part of the country, if you go over state lines. So it is like, I mean, we are like actually locked down and we've been like this for such a long time up here. And it is, it is really truly freaky if I let it be freaky, right? Like if I, if I allow myself to go to that place and I haven't been doing that very much, but there were in the beginning of this thing, there were, there were nights where I really could not sleep and I'd just be staring up at the ceiling thinking tomorrow was the same and tomorrow was the same and tomorrow was the same. And a big thing for me was when Jude, our eldest, told me that and he said, daddy, like every day feels like the same. And I was like, okay, fuck it. I got to A, get back and putting effort mm-hmm. into parenting more again um, <laughs> and, and like be more proactive. But, but B, it is that way for me too. And it can't, it, I, it cannot start feeling like that, right? So like even just tomorrow, like I'm really excited that it's a weekend, even though it's the same as it is every other day. Although I guess I'm not sitting at my desk doing work during the day, but regardless, like treating it like a weekend, like having pancakes and waking up late and watching cartoons and just like trying to get some sense of, of breaking up this, this like endless cycle, because like, I, I truly, I truly don't know, at least in the Northeast, when this is going to change again. And, um, and it's, and it's, if you allow yourself to go down that path, it's like, it's just really freaky. And, and I know from personal experience, um, you know, I, the two people who are related to people close to me have committed suicide in the last two weeks. And I don't think that that's a, an accident. You know, I, I, I'm obviously not an accident, but I, I'm, I'm sure that people who, you know, we have addiction in our family, um, as, as Jamie knows, you know, uh, people in our, that were related to in our family. Um, and, uh, and that has been extremely exacerbated by this situation. Um, I think it's really easy if you're a depressive alcoholic to go down because, because like I'm not and I'm going down that dark hole every night when I'm lying in bed. And I have a good support system here and I'm not, you know, an addictive personality type, but I'm very grateful for that. But if, but if I didn't have that support system and if I relied on substances, like I would, and it'd be in a very bad place right now. 
You know what's and funny, think, Patrick, that you yeah. mentioned that. Just sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no. Uh, and you probably don't know this, but we all have sort of those lifelines. But for me, it's been you. Like, if you, if I don't, if we don't connect or talk during the day, because I don't, like, you're the person. You're probably the only person right now in my life. I mean, Dan too, but you're different. Where we connect philosophically, we connect emotionally, we connect artistically. Um, where we all have those lifelines of things. And I'm like, if I can't check in with people during the day, I feel like stressed. And like, you know, earlier we were like, I gotta, we gotta hang out. We gotta do something. And that's me yeah. like saying, I need my friends, you know? Um, yeah. And it's been, that's like, cause that's all I have right now. You know, it's, I mean, I, my, I live with my dad, my mom, my sister and her four boys. Um, and they're wonderful people. Um, but they don't leave the house and we're all, I mean, we're tired of seeing each other, not that we don't love each other, but so for us, it's, for me, it's you, it's Dan. Um, but it's, it's been, I feel like that, that room is getting smaller and smaller and smaller, you know, um, yeah. like we live in this big world, but it doesn't feel like a big world. And I know that there's not really this, this conversation is cyclical because nothing's ending soon. Um, but I found myself today watching Gavin Newsom talk about whatever. And I started getting angry at him. Like you're in your fucking mansion doing blah, 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 blah. And you're telling us we have to stay inside. And I was feeling myself get angry. Like, let us go. Let us let say that it's okay for me to go hang out with my, my church friends because I need them, you know, but they're not giving any timelines. They're not giving a date yet. They're saying weeks, but when, um, and, we're looking for a place to move. We haven't been able to find one. We have till March 7th to get out. Actually, we just told her we can't leave. We have nowhere to go. We have, we have uh, a special needs children. One's 12, the other one's six, I'm autistic. So there's that stress of moving and just so much, you know, just sort of life moves on despite a pandemic happening. So lifelines are important for me. They've been important for me. Um, and this show for me, and the, the ability that we can get on here with you, Craig, and you, Patrick, and just talk about it is, this is therapy for me. Yeah. And I, I obviously you're one of my main lifelines too. And you, you, you know that very well. Um, I, as we wrap tonight, I just, I want to say for one thing, Craig, thank you so much for yes. joining. This has been like, this has worked out so incredibly well. This was a total experiment. And, you know, of, of all the people who could have joined, we got one of the best people that could have been on this call tonight. Well, so thank you for being here. Thank you very much for that. I think that maybe with just a slightly longer advanced notice, you oh, may have sure. had, yeah. So I wouldn't, I would uh, greatly encourage doing this again um, sometime in the very near future. Oh, we will. And that was the rest of my, what I was going to say was that okay. this was the, uh, basically a pilot, but this is something that we've decided we're going to be doing you know, semi-regularly during these months of quarantine conditions. And so this is, like Jamie mentioned, this is a new series we're calling Interlinked. And it is just a chance informally to connect regularly as a fandom um, and to talk about like whatever comes up basically, but just to be here with each other and for each other. And, uh, and so we, we will try to be more, we, we, I mean, the schedules have been kind of crazy with all the moving and all these things lately, but we're going to try to get um, some more advanced warning up for people next time so that we can I'm, hopefully uh, I'm glad I could more. be here for the inaugural and ha like I say have you two to myself because I've just had so much that I've wanted to say to you both and I know that we've we've had our uh, our, our contacts through messaging and that but uh, um, I haven't had a chance to just kind of 
look at you guys in the eyes, even though it's through the monitor here, and have a chance to, 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 to talk with you directly. And it's been absolutely wonderful. I, I love listening uh, to the interaction of all of you regulars on the program. You all have very distinct personalities, and you all have your very own distinct ways of interacting with each other, which is a very entertaining thing to listen to. Thanks well, thank so you for Craig. listening. Come, come to the next one too, if you can. Yeah, and who oh, knows? I, we might hear Craig on another over. audio drama soon. Who knows? Yes. Well, <laughs> I know that you were talking about something. So. Oh yeah, we won't even touch that yet. Oh, <laughs> yeah. there's some bombs dropping at the end of this yes. informal roundtable tonight. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. Potent yeah. Potential bombs. Potential bombs. Could be blanks. <laughs> Oh, well, I, uh, again, I, I thank you both so much for, for allowing me to join you here tonight. It's been a real pleasure. The pleasure is ours, sir. It. Thanks, Jamie. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a good night. We, we are doing this probably every couple of weeks. I've been was talking with Patrick, like, come on, Patrick. He's like, Jamie, we just dropped like five episodes for this other week. He's like, let's <laughs> give it some space. And I was like, please, please, please. So we'll, we'll drop this one. We'll, we'll, we might do it again next week. If not, we'll probably definitely do it the week after just oh, yeah. as a place for people to come and um, hang out and talk and talk about Blade Runner and talk about where you are in life and all that kind of thing. So. I'll have better lighting and better sound next time. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Take Thank Thanks. you. Have a good night. Thanks. To find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group.